previously on Dying for a Fight. I mean, being black in America, it, do, I, do I feel safe? No, not really. But we already not safe. We don't, we don't make some noise with it. Would Sean have been out there this past summer? He would have been doing everything he could to have amped it up to the next level. I think we would have disagreed in 2020 more than ever. He would have not viewed the power of these legislative fixes that I thought were possible because of the uprising. Photographed Antifa medics trying to fight off cop medics as they came in and tried to treat him. I mean, he was dead within a couple minutes. He was a great man, and he did not deserve the end he met. We ask now that Portland, Oregon, and the entire country stand together and renounce any further acts of violence. The only thing that went through my head is I thought of his family, I thought of his mom. Before we get started, a warning. This episode contains strong language and descriptions of violence that some listeners may find disturbing or traumatic. Please keep that in mind when choosing when and where to listen. When I first heard about Sean Kellyer's case, it seemed like solving it should have been straightforward for the police. Sean and his friends were leaving a popular bar after getting drinks on the weekend. You'd think there would have been video surveillance and witnesses, and police have the SUV that struck and killed Sean. Shouldn't that have given them DNA evidence and an easy path to the driver, or at the very least get them closer? But it didn't take long for me to start running into problems. Like when I first tried to get Sean's friends to talk to me, the ones who were at Cider Riot that night. So the, the three dots appeared and then it disappeared. So he was replying. Now he's, oh, three dots are back. He's replying. It's like, you know, like when you, like, I haven't dated in a long time, but it's like when you date and you're like, you text something and they have, they're just replying and they decide not to. And you're like, fuck. It's like that. But the thing is that if they keep deleting and, and rewriting, that's a good thing for you, right? Because they are thinking about what they're doing. Eventually, the person at the other end of the text did agree to talk. We booked another rental to record out of and set up the microphones. But then an hour before the interview, I got another message. It said he wasn't coming. Like with dating, I try to play it cool. This kind of is like, oh yeah, for sure, we can just get this, no problem. So leaves that door open. Without any witnesses who would talk, producer Grant Irving, Jonathan Levinson, and I decided to walk to the scene where Sean died. We hoped to find surveillance cameras or other people who might have seen what went down. Yeah, so let's see where that's at. So where the cameras allegedly were? Like well, just like, like where the... Assailants supposedly were. Yeah. I, I want to see. We where started our walk outside the Bossa Nova Ballroom, a club where Laura believes the people who allegedly killed her son were at the night of the killing. The place is about a block southwest of Cider Riot and has a small music venue inside. All right, so they, they came from here, supposedly. I mean, it looks like a totally normal bar. And then. Yeah, it's right next to a very expensive French place. These are expensive hotels. All right, so then we figure they're going down this street. A person who worked in the area told us police went to the Bossa Nova ballroom shortly after the killing in 2019. This person said that officers were looking for footage, including video of a man with a beard. The Bossa Nova ballroom has since changed its camera equipment and no longer has the footage that police took. The business also didn't have surveillance video of its parking lot at that time. We then walked up the street towards the scene of the crime. So we're walking side to right. We're uh, on the street where Sean was killed, but down there. So the distance between Bossa Nova, side to right, and the Democratic Party building where Sean died is just a few blocks. We walked in a matter of minutes. 
We stopped outside the Democratic building. Here's well, there are basically no cameras. Uh, this is just not a lot of camera situation because, like, there's no retail. It's just industrial. It's a bread factory over here. It's just not a great spot for cameras. It's like that dark street is one of the few places in the city, close to popular bars and restaurants, without significant surveillance. We did see a camera on the bread factory that may have been pointing towards the intersection near the scene of the crime. But that company did not return our request for comment. Laura thinks that camera may have seen something, but the police have not given her or us a clear answer on that. It's a more industrial area, a stark contrast with wealthy businesses nearby, and a reminder of obvious disparities in Portland that show up if you're looking for them. Jonathan pointed out that even if there were cameras in the area where the killing took place, it wouldn't guarantee police could make an arrest. It also, I mean, it also doesn't matter unless it shows who was driving the car when he was hit. It doesn't matter. Like, they can put three people at the scene unless they can put a specific person behind the wheel. Hi. Sorry. Oh, no problem. Is there anything going on out here or something? We're recording the As we were talking, a man emerged from a nearby building where his band practices. He said he heard us talking outside of his door. For a minute, I was hopeful that I had found a witness. Was that there the night that it happened? My cameras? Yeah. No. I've put those in after the first time the windows were broken out here. The man said he didn't see anything either. He was not at his business that night. The owner of an antique store next to the DNC building said the same thing. Both men said they wanted me to let them know if I learned anything about what happened the night Sean was killed. They remembered the incident and were curious. I'd encounter similar roadblocks throughout my reporting. I'd find avenues that seemed promising only to reach a dead end. And it raised questions, like was this case actually as easy to solve as Sean's friends and family thought it should be? Those questions came up partly because leftists in Portland often compared Sean's killing to a political murder that the police did manage to resolve. In fact, they cleared it in just a few days. And that was the killing of Aaron J. Danielson, the Trump supporter that was killed at the caravan rally during Portland's summer of protests. From something else in Oregon Public Broadcasting, this is The Fault Line, dying for a fight. I'm Sergio Olmos. I wasn't even aware of what was going on. I was actually out with my son, and we happened to see hundreds of trucks with flags on them, and so I had no idea what I was going into. In early September of 2020, a small film crew working for Vice News gathered in a secret location in Portland to talk to this man. My name is Michael Forrest Rynell, born and raised in Portland, Oregon. This was just days after the man wearing the Patriot Prayer hat, Aaron J. Danielson, had been shot and killed at the Trump caravan rally through downtown Portland. This was the caravan on August 29th, 2020, that came after a summer of racial justice protests. And as those protests shrank, far-right groups like Patriot Prayer and the Proud Boys came back to Portland, potentially ready for violence in the name of politics. Danielson was among many people who were attracted to the ever-shifting front lines of political street fights in 2020. He and Michael right now were both downtown as confrontations broke out near the caravan. I found myself surrounded by trucks and cars that had weapons, not paintball guns. There were we obtained a full copy of this interview 
from a person who was familiar with Raynell and filmed it as a backup. Just for my own protection, um, you know, lots of lawyers suggest that I shouldn't even be seeing anything. But I've The video shows a thin white man. He wears a black stocking cap pulled down low. His face is gaunt, and his eyes look like he's barely slept. On Rynell's neck is a tattoo of a clenched fist, a symbol associated with Black Lives Matter. And when this was filmed, local and federal police were hunting him, armed with a warrant for the murder of Jay Danielson, which is not something Rynell denies. Uh, what I will say is that I felt that my life and other people around me's lives were in danger. And I felt like I had no choice but to do what I did. When Rynell was younger, he made a living as a commercial snowboarder. But in the years leading up to 2020, he had been involved in a custody battle and was working on and off in construction. He told the interviewers that he hadn't really gone to protest for racial justice before the summer of 2020. But I honestly came into this like most stupid white people thinking all lives matter. But no, yeah, no shit all lives matter. The point is, is that we haven't actually acted that way. And so now we are saying to everyone that black lives matter. And right now was not like Sean Kellier. He had not been out in the streets for years protesting. Before 2020, he wasn't fighting for racial justice or confronting racists. He was radicalized because he saw police violence at protests, and he wanted to fight back. And yeah, I've completely changed. You know, I, I was uh, just kind of floating through life and then found myself in this major learning experience. And it, it made me make choices that most people would never even think of. Michael Rynell got that tattoo on his neck during the protests. Yeah. Um, the reason why I ended up getting this tattoo is because I kept getting confronted by people of the movement because, you know, I also don't look the part. And I'd have to explain, no, I'm cool, I'm okay, I'm helping, you know. He said he wanted to use his race as a weapon against the state and against groups like Patriot Prayer. I wanted them to look at me. I wanted to use my white power against them. I wanted to rub it in their face. And because I did that, they turned up a notch on me, and, and, and I just kept turning it back up. Surveillance video from downtown Portland would later show Rynell emerging from a parking garage, and other video footage showed him following Danielson and another person for a few steps. In a bystander's video, you can hear someone shout, we got a couple right here. Danielson then uses a can of bear mace and takes a couple of steps towards Rynell. Rynell then shoots. Ryanell told the cameras that he had made a split-second decision to defend a black man during the Trump caravan. That man would later deny to investigators that he knew Ryanell. Still, Ryanell said this was a cause he was willing to die for. And in this interview, he starts to reflect on what that really means. I never wanted to take an aggressive stand against the police or the government. Um, that stand came, like you said, because I love these people, and I genuinely would die for any one of them if it meant change in this country, even if it would negatively affect my children not having their father around. If it was something that would change, then it's worth it. 
right now my my family is completely ruined I have no way to provide for them now my biggest worry is that there's not going to be somebody to find a way to help my children in the days after Jay Danielson's murder some conservatives turned him into a martyr a symbol of the threat of anti-fascists Speaking to a conservative talk radio host after Danison was killed, Patriot Prayer leader Joey Gibson said Michael Rynell was a product of the politics in Portland. So he's looking for the right moment to be able to kill someone, and that was his moment. They built a culture of lawlessness in the city of Portland and all these far-left cities. They shoot Jay in cold blood like this is some sort of game. Gibson blamed Portland for the murder of his friend. And in some ways, he's right. A seemingly hands-off attitude by police and city leaders created conditions where people could openly brawl on city streets over politics. Danielson's estate would later sue Portland and city officials for not doing enough to prevent the violence. But Gibson has a role in these fights that he doesn't readily acknowledge. For him and others who were willing to fight, the brawls were great entertainment until they weren't. Nearly a week after Jay Danielson's killing, a U.S. Marshal's Violent Offender Task Force was gathering to arrest Michael Rynell. According to investigators' notes, police statements, and the official report, the officers met at the South Hill Precinct of the Pierce County Washington Sheriff's Department. It was on September 3rd of 2020. This was a group of officers from local departments. They wore military-grade tactical gear increasingly common after 9-11. Their peers in Portland had used similar gear in the protests that summer. And now, federally deputized officers in Washington state were leading a raid on an accused killer. Inside the nearly windowless concrete building, local officers received a briefing about Rynell. Their PowerPoint presentation warned that he, quote, thinks he's at war with police. They were also told afterward he was affiliated with Antifa. Officer Michael Merrill with the Lakewood Police Department was on this task force. He wrote in his statement that, quote, Antifa is known for its violence and hatred towards police. After the briefing, the officers split off into vehicles and set up outside an apartment in Lacey, Washington. Lacey is just outside of Olympia, about two hours north of Portland. And law enforcement received a tip Rynell was hiding there. It was after 6 p.m. in the residential neighborhood where the officers had parked. The sun was going down, but people were outside in the neighborhood, enjoying one of the last days before fall rains moved into the Pacific Northwest. All right, who's on here now? John and Case here. The officers checked their radios at the scene. Officer reports indicate police and unmarked vehicles around the building were having problems talking to each other. Was that only? No, it was Goshen and Ryan, but there's very little service out here. And as they were trying to fix their radios, the officers said they saw Rynell and other people come outside the apartment where he was staying. Doors open again. I don't know if anyone put it out yet because we can't hear anything, but dude, big guy got into the passport. One officer radioed that he saw Rynell heading to a Volkswagen Jetta. He's making his way to the Jetta right now. Yeah, he's in the Jetta. Police would later report that Rynell was carrying a black bag with a disassembled rifle inside. Jake, are you sure that's him? He's standing right by the trash cans. Officers said they watched as Rynell put the bag in the car and then got in the driver's seat. 
Oh, he's wearing the same pants from the video in the shooting. The officer in charge of the team radioed to let Rynell leave if officers weren't close enough to make an arrest. It's not clear if all the officers heard him. He's getting in the Jetta. Should take him. He's in the Jetta. Or too far. Let him drive. Jetta's running. Jetta's running. But Deputy James Olioli decided to move for the arrest. Let's go take it. Are we moving? Olioli's partner that evening, Officer Merrill, quickly sped to block Rynell's vehicle. As he did that, Olioli said he became afraid Rynell had a gun. So he began shooting his rifle through the windshield of their own unmarked police vehicle. Shit, shit, bro. Other officers started moving too and began shooting at Rynell as he exited the Jetta. Take him down. Take him. Fire, shot, fire. Copy, shot, sorry. Any deputies? The officers fired some 40 rounds at Michael Rynell before he died in the street near some mailboxes. Some officers wrote in the reports that he was reaching for his waistband. The police recovered a loaded handgun from Rynell's front pocket. An investigator on the case told OPB he thought that Rynell could have fired the gun and put it back into his pocket before police killed him. Some criticized the shooting as an extrajudicial killing meant to appease the then-president. It didn't seem like there was any attempt to take Rhino alive. And President Trump praised the actions of the police officers involved. We sent in the U.S. Marshals. Took 15 minutes, it was over. 15 minutes, it was over. We got him. And then U.S. Attorney Bill Barr issued a statement the day after police killed Rhino, calling it, quote, a significant accomplishment in the ongoing effort to restore law and order to Portland and other cities. I'm going to back you up a little bit. When did you first hear gunfire? It was seconds. Did I would you... say a matter of five seconds. Did you? This is a recording of an investigator speaking to a witness of the shooting. The witness's name is Garrett Lewis. Did you hear any yelling or anything prior to that? I heard no commands given. No. Lewis was outside with his children when police began shooting at Michael Raynell. Put a bullet casing in a freaking evidence bag where my son was on his bike, like directly where he was. Okay, so let's... Officers sprayed bullets across his apartment complex, a working-class neighborhood. One even pierced a kiddie pool in a backyard and went into a nearby apartment. I felt like bullets passed my son. Like, I saw a bunch of red come out of a guy and he fell to the ground, and it was way different than Call of Duty. And, like, I don't know how to explain it. From the moment the order was given to let Rynell leave, to the moment officers called in shots fired over the radio, less than two minutes had passed. A swift, decisive, and final form of justice had unfolded in Lacey, Washington that September night. More after this break. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. 
Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Laura Kellier had mostly walked away from protests after Jay Danielson was killed. She tried to put distance between herself and the politics in the street. But she says Michael Rynell's killing was a dark reminder of what Sean had told her about police. I knew they were going to do something to him. We all knew that they were going to do something to him. The police were going to take care of it. Whoever, they were going to take care of it because there was no way they were going to let a leftist not pay. I was angry. I was pissed. I mean, you literally just went and murdered this dude... And yet you can't solve this? Are you fucking kidding me? You have all that information and you've done nothing with it because you don't give a damn about the left. I have no doubt in my mind. They just don't give a damn. So you think if, if the, the killer's a leftist, they care. But if, if the killed is a leftist... They could care less. During my investigation of Sean's homicide, I struggled to make progress and find definitive answers. And we wanted to know how comparable these cases really were. Our producer, Jonathan, asked about this, too, when he met with Portland Police Commander Jeff Bell. Jonathan asked if the cases can be compared. I think there's a couple of things. First of all, the perception that uh, the Bureau found right now in a couple of days, and that sort of fed this perception that there's one kind of crime the Bureau cares about and one kind of crime the Bureau is less concerned with. Oh, I didn't even think about it that way. Um, the circumstances are entirely different. Um, I mean, we had video and we were able to identify him very, very quickly. Laura is certain there's surveillance video from that night. Is there? I know there was video that the investigators reviewed. I'm not sure exactly what, what all that contained. Um, there's video of everything now. I mean, it's really hard. Commander Bell is confirming that detectives working on Sean's killing did get some kind of video from that night but it's not clear what is on those tapes. Bell's insistent Sean Kellier's case and Jay Danielson's case aren't exactly the same. One took place in downtown with lots of people standing nearby. The other killing happened on a side street with almost no surveillance cameras. Still, there were witnesses to Sean's killing. I had been trying for weeks to get those witnesses to talk to me. But one day in May, I got an encrypted text message. It was from Sean's friend. The one who had stood me up after he said he would talk. Laura had asked him again if he would talk to me, and this time he said yes. Sean's friends met us on a June evening at a basement apartment we had rented in Southeast Portland. Jonathan was with me. Started you, and I don't know. Tell me what you did today. Uh, yeah, I'm usually a framer. We had to do some bullshit roofing. We were all pissed about it. Oh, uh, how about you? What's uh, I don't know what you did today. Uh, I went to my job as a mechanic. And uh, I didn't work real hard. These men asked that we use their street names for this interview, Lucky and Switch. Both of them are anti-racist skinheads who came up in the punk scene. I would say that the first real punk band that I listened to was the Dropkick Murphys. Yeah, like ACDC and the Stooges, and then like Bad Brains. <laughs> Lucky was wearing a shirt that harkened back to the skinhead scene in the UK. Uh, no. And Switch wore a white-collared shirt, buttoned up close to his neck, where there was a tattoo that read, All Cops Are Bastards. I started the interview by asking Lucky how he first met Sean. I met Sean probably in like 2015. 
baby at a party uh over in southeast somewhere i can't remember i just remember being really drunk and talking to him because he's like the only other skinhead there he's like wearing a track jacket or something i was like fucking love track jackets what's up homie uh yeah ended up doing a lot of anti-racist stuff with them and then just yeah became good homies with them over the years switch says that he met sean around 2015 or 16. switch was living on the east coast and they started talking online uh so we were we grew pretty tight online like ultra-left anarchists and anti-state communist uh, spaces online. I'm a bit older than Sean, but uh, he was a cool kid, you know? He was, he was fun to be around. Switch and Sean were so close online that Switch moved to Portland in 2019 to live with Sean. It was just a few months before Sean was killed. Can you, do you remember the first time you met him and what that was like? I read the train out here from the East Coast. And, uh, yeah, he picked me up from the train station. I only really knew him in real life those last couple months. Um, but, uh, up until the end, you know, like, we were having a, a good time, you know? And it was, uh, fun to be around him. I felt like there was a lot of momentum getting going, too. Like, it was cool. I wish he would have stuck around longer. I wish he hadn't been killed. He and I were really excited to be friends in real life and to be roommates. Switch and Lucky are not the kind of people you might think of when you think about the anti-fascists who are out protesting in 2020. They don't carry signs, and you probably won't see them chanting in the street. Sean's group of anti-racist skinheads see themselves as protectors by any means necessary. Um, What does being a skinhead what does that mean, like, besides going to Scott shows, besides, like, you know, what what does that entail? For me personally, holding space in my city. What does that mean? Cowboys are not allowed to step foot in Portland. They know that. Holding space means defending that space from people who want to come in and establish a white supremacist state like Oregon has been for a very long time. I mean, Proud Boys, right, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. They call themselves Western Chauvinist. Right. And so if you tell me that you are a Western chauvinist, right, then you're you're telling me that I'm here to destroy your culture. I'm here to dominate you. I'm here to make you uh, a Western man. And uh, so, yeah, I'm going to punch you in the fucking face because uh, this is what I know. We're working class people. We're, we're not college students. We're not middle class. We don't come from wealth. All we know how to do is bang. Yeah, it's not a theater for debate. Yeah. Like, you're trying to fucking, you want to kill my trans on me? Like, no, nah, that's just not going to happen. Like, <laughs> So I asked Switch and Lucky if their politics are that much more radical than everyone else. Why was Sean defending liberals like Gregory McKelvey, for example, at protests? Well, I think his nihilism was more of an escape from how hard he loved. Like, yeah. I mean, the fool was charismatic and he cared. Yeah, he didn't really want to care as much hard. as he did. There were definitely times where I would argue with him, like, why would you want to catch a charge throwing a punch to defend that person? Or, yeah, he's like, you know, I, I, don't, he, I know you don't like that guy. Like, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're not really our comrades. Like, you don't have to bang for him. But, but that was Sean. Yeah. After learning about their friendship with Sean... So, 
I then asked Switch about the night Sean was killed. Do you remember how that day started? Me and Sean were working together at the time. So we were at work together at a uh, like junk hauling place. Were you guys just going to have a beer just because it was fucking work day and you just wanted to hang out? Or? Yeah, Friday night. Yeah, Friday night, meet up, hang out. What's everybody doing for a weekend? There's a soul night later that night. We we're going to hit that up. Their friend was DJing soul and reggae music at Cider Riot that night. So Sean, Lucky, and Switch decided to go. They're having a good time, and they're drinking beers on Switch's tab. Sometime around midnight, they decided to head home. Uh, all right, and then, and then walk me through. Like, what, what happens next? Uh, we said our goodbyes at uh, the bar and walked out. Uh, some sort of, uh, like... Shit talk from some kids to Sean started going back and forth, and uh, what kind of shit talking? Like, what are they saying? I don't remember, because I was definitely drunk. Like out front? Now down the block. As I tried to pry more details about that night, it became clear that Lucky wasn't going to tell me everything. Were they talking shit on your appearance or like just calling you out? Like, what kind of? I'm, I'm not talking about the events on record that happened that night. But Switch said that he could tell me his version of that night. He said these guys and Sean kept yelling at each other from about a block away. And uh, I felt like it wasn't going anywhere. And like, uh, everybody was just going to walk away in two or three minutes. And so I walked away right then to go take a piss because I was drunk. While Switch was around the corner, the same people who had been arguing with Sean got into an SUV and drove up the street fast. And uh, while I was gone, I could hear the uh, the sounds of of vehicular chaos, and uh, I came running back up. What happened? Uh, Sean was already under the back of the car. And we ran out there and pulled his body out from under the car. It was at this point, according to police records we obtained and attorney statements published in the Oregonian newspaper, that Lucky is reported to have fired a legally concealed handgun several times at the SUV that had run over Sean. His attorney said that Lucky thought the vehicle was going to back up over Sean. The bullets hit the tailgate, but didn't go through. Lucky has refused to comment about the shooting. Whoever was inside the SUV fled at this point. Meanwhile, Sean was on the ground, bleeding. This is your friend. Do you remember what, I mean, was he, was, was he breathing? Was he still alive? Um, yeah, he was, he was still breathing, or he at least still had a pulse. Um, I gave him CPR in the backseat on the way to the hospital, but he couldn't respond in any way. Were you thinking, okay, I could either chase these guys or I could stay here with Sean? What's going through your mind? That we need to get Sean to the hospital. I'm a combat veteran, and I think that the uh, mentality that I picked up immediately was that we needed to get him out of that dangerous situation and get him to care. Uh, And even looking back on it, I still feel pretty confident in the decision because we didn't know what was going on. We didn't know why this had happened. We didn't know if 
you know, there was going to be another car rolling by with fascists with AKs in it, you know? Um, our friend was bleeding out in the street and we needed to, we needed to take care of the situation. That was a pretty wild car ride too. (laughs) Yeah. That was some of my best driving. (laughs) How long was that? Like that must've felt like an eternity to get to the hospital. Yeah. There was no, uh, just no sense of time there. I think we made it there in like three or four minutes. Yeah. I think we pulled up to the the Uh, ambulance. Ambulance take in. It's the first entrance you can get to going into Legacy Emanuel. And and you're just carrying Sean inside or what's going on? Yeah, we ran up to the doors with him, and they saw us coming. Yeah, they brought. They already had a gurney coming out. We just kind of yeah. threw him out of our, my car into, into the, onto the gurney. Switch says that they had no time to take stock of what happened or why it happened. He asked somebody at the hospital if he could wash Sean's blood off of him. And that's when the night took another unexpected turn. They let me into a bathroom. I was covered in blood. Uh, and I washed up and opened the door, and uh, Portland police officer uh, took me in custody and put me in the back seat of cruiser. In the hospital? Mm-hmm. Did he say what you were under arrest for? Uh, no. No. Sean Kellier died on October 12th, 2019. While his mother, Laura, was inside the hospital getting news from the doctor and the hospital chaplain, Lucky and Switch were waiting in the back of separate police vehicles. They said they knew Sean had died when the coroner's van pulled up to Legacy Emanuel Hospital. And the coroner vehicle pulls up for your friend. And they still won't let you out of the car. But like, what's the first question that police officer asks you? Uh, first thing I remember being asked was if I knew anything uh, about a shooting. How soon after did, did did a police officer ask that? I don't remember. Like immediately? <laughs> yeah, probably like while I was being put in cuffs, probably in response to me being like outraged, like why, what, what, why, why all this, you know, like, and I'm like, whoa, there's a shooting. And I'm like, what the fuck, bro? Like, <laughs> my friend didn't get shot, he got ran over, you know? More after this break. For someone with a large neck tattoo that says ACAB, it's notable that Switch will admit that at least one cop isn't a complete bastard. To this one cop's credit, uh, when the coroner's van pulled up and I was upset, I asked that cop, like, yo, my homie just died. Like, I'm covered in his blood. Can I smoke a cigarette? And uh, the cop legit was like, yeah, sure, go ahead. So thanks, thanks to that one cop. Like, thank you, maybe, like... Maybe we won't put you up against the wall. (laughs) Still, there's nothing friendly about when Switch and Lucky were taken to downtown Portland for an interrogation. So, Oh, so they're asking about the shooting. They're asking, what do you know about the shooting? And your response is, my friend got shot. Like, that's not not in my fucking mind right now. Yeah. Like, my friend didn't get shot. He got ran over. What did they say when you said that? Um, I don't know. They didn't believe us. Yeah. Yeah. They kept us that night overnight in homicide. Yeah, they kept us till about 5 o'clock the next afternoon. We don't have the police account of this night in the interrogation. Detectives in this case still won't sit down for interviews. And the police bureau won't release transcripts of the interrogations because they consider this an ongoing investigation. But Switch and Lucky 
so that the detectives tried all kinds of interrogation techniques on them, repeating questions, being nice, being not so nice. But mostly they say it was a lot of waiting. What's like the first thing he opens up with? That I hadn't told him uh, everything, all the details, like normal, normal police interrogation stuff where they're like, you know, like just asking you to repeat your story over and over and over and over again um, because they're trying to catch your, your mistakes in your details and things like that. And just insisting that by my not being able to give him information that, of course, I don't have, um, that I'm withholding stuff and that, uh, you know, don't, don't I care about Laura and all that she's gone through? Like, if Sean is supposedly your friend, why, don't, why aren't you helping us, you know, as if I have anything to, to help with? Were they questioning you as, like, a suspect or were they just trying to figure out, just learn what you knew? I certainly felt uh, like I was a suspect. Yeah, it wasn't a, a buddy meeting with a cop. Like, <laughs> it wasn't like you just witnessed your friend die. You know, let's let's figure out what happened. No, absolutely not. And Lucky says he thinks police reacted the way they did because he and Switch and Sean are anti-racist skinheads. But when you know two skinheads show up covered in blood, yeah, with another dead skinhead, you know, it was like flies on shit. Really, like they just figured something was up. Who's back? Who are you with? What are you doing? Why did this happen? Who did you do? Like, why did you do this? Kind of thing. Anti-racist skinheads don't trust the police. The police don't trust them. And that distrust appears to be a major roadblock to solving Sean's homicide. Police have made it clear. They say they need a witness in this case. And through my investigation so far, what I've learned is that there just aren't a lot of witnesses. One unhoused man talked to the press right after Sean's killing. But he died in February. Switch and Lucky appear to be the only living witnesses aside from the perpetrators. So I asked them directly, how much have they helped police already and if they would be willing to do more? Um, so did they try to give you like a lineup and like, hey, we have some suspects. Can you look at pictures? Did they ever go about you that, that there, way? There was never any... Uh, talk from the police to us as someone who could help their case, help solve Sean's murder. They never even really expressed interest in solving Sean's murder, I would say. Did you feel the same way? Absolutely. Granted, I think they knew that neither of us would testify and we probably wouldn't really cooperate beyond what we had told them. Did you tell them we're not going to testify, though? No. I just want to make clear. Like, they assumed you wouldn't testify or you like straight up like affirm to them, no matter what, we're not testifying. I mean, no, I didn't tell them because that wasn't even, that's not germane to the conversation I would have with a police detective. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not going to be talking to the detective about what's going to happen in the courtroom. And, and just so I understand, let's just say the detective came to you and said, I got these two guys. I just need a witness to verify it was these two guys, and then I'm putting them in handcuffs, and then we're going to prosecute them for murder. Would you say... I don't know if I can answer that question. That would be a lot of pressure. But, uh, I mean, generally I would say no, because uh, I don't think that justice is going to be found through the, the process uh, in the courtroom. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, without a doubt. Um, 
Personally, I don't think it's something Sean would want, something Sean didn't believe in, and I'd like to honor that at least. Also, I just don't believe in the pro- like the idea of prison. It's not what justice looks like to me. It was at this point in my conversation with Sean's friends where the obstacles became more clear. The then head of Portland's detectives told us that a witness is necessary for them to solve Sean's case because in his view, that's what it would take to bring charges that would stick in court. And these two men who knew Sean and deeply shared the ideals that he believed in, they say it'd be very hard for them to ever testify. I mean, that's what it means to be, like, committed to your ideals. Abolition doesn't just mean letting people out of jail who ought to be out of jail, which is, like, how we like to think about it, because that that's, like, the really good and positive part. But it also means, uh, you know, we have to take on this responsibility of figuring out how, as a society, we're going to deal with these people who are antisocial. Switch says he's committed to his ideals even if that comes at a personal cost. As for Lucky, who told us he got his nickname because the SUV that ran over Sean was just inches from killing him as well, he says he told Laura flat out that he isn't compromising his beliefs. Laura wants justice, but Lucky's been clear with her. He's not participating in the legal system. Um, I had a whole conversation with her about that where I was like, I'm sorry, but I was like, I cannot testify. Like, I just, I wouldn't. And I was like, I know that's might be hard for you to accept, but that's just what it is. And like, I apologize. But, and she's like, no, that's no thing. We had a really, really good long talk about it. Um, so she's not necessarily super stoked on it, but she respects it and that it's the right thing. And ultimately that we are still a huge part of what happened, even though it is her son. The same as with Laura, Switch and Lucky believe police are intentionally not solving Sean's homicide. So I asked, even if you grant that premise that cops aren't trying to solve his homicide, are you being complicit by not cooperating? It is, is your guys' not cooperating almost help them get off the hook? All I know is that when I get to heaven, Sean will buy me a beer for never talking to the cops. Yeah, I'm, yeah. It's, I mean, it's the same game. It's the same game I've heard a million times when there really needs to be justice to be had when the police are supposed to do their jobs to protect the community that they that they police. It's the same story. There's always a problem with the DA. Oh, the DA doesn't want to press charges. Our involvement in it has no, no bearing on the outcome of what happens with Sean's case. I mean, if I, if I believe that the, the state can't, can't bring justice, why would I bring them into the picture? Switch and Lucky believe the men Laura has accused are the ones who killed Sean, and yet these men are still free and living their lives. So I wondered, what does losing Sean mean to Switch and Lucky? What should people take away from this case that's in limbo? It's not moving through the criminal justice system we have, but it also can't move through the form of justice that Sean believed in, because that's not part of our system. What does justice look like for you? In the truest sense of the word, uh, justice looks like Laura being able to come to terms that her son was murdered and feel all right about that there's a person in this world that exists that killed her son. That's the nicest way I can put it. (laughs) 
there a not nice way of putting it? Yeah, but I'm not going to... I mean, you know, I'd love to see the worst things in the world happen to that guy. Is that not also a part of the justice that kind of you... that makes sense to you? I mean, it makes sense to me. It doesn't mean it's right. I mean, to me, justice is about making whole the people who were most harmed by this. And so for me, the justice has to center on the outcome that Sean's family wants to see, what makes them feel the most whole afterwards. And that might not be what I want or what I see as a just outcome, but them becoming whole is what I see as the just outcome. When I talked to Switch and Lucky, it was obvious that they love Sean and they miss him. It's the same grief I heard from Michael Fletcher, the same type of grief Laura still lives with. Switch and Lucky share something else with Laura too. They all live in this gray area where justice seems out of reach. Um, you know, he, I, I just been talking to his mom, and I think this this is a this is a sad thing. She lost her son, and it it was like a thing that could happen to anyone, really, like a bar fight, right? Well, this is, I mean, life is cheaper for poor people. You know, rich people don't get run over in the street outside of the bar at the end of the night. But this is a thing that happens <clears throat> to to poor people and to working people, and like. Obviously, our lives are not as valuable to the state and to the police, and so they don't invest the resources uh, in in providing for us. Like our our lives are cheap, and uh, unless they want to put us in jail, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, like my homie got hit by a car and died in the street, but like you you say that shit on the block, and like everyone else will have a story to relate to you. That, that, like, that's just life being poor in America. Like, it's violent. As we were finishing talking, producer Jonathan Levinson asked a question that was on my mind as well. Do you want the police to solve the murder? Um, it's a good question. If Sean's killer were locked up, I'm still against prison. And, and so that means in the, in the big picture that I don't want Sean's killer in prison because I don't want anyone in prison. But there is, there's like a, there's a fundamental criticism to a lot of things you're saying that the police don't care, that the police don't care about you because whether it's because you're skinheads, whether it's because you're anti-state or because you're <clears throat> poor, does them solving the murder undermine that narrative for you a little bit? So does it somehow like shore if up my, your worldview? If view? my shit talking can get the police to do something, then like... That will be the greatest accomplishment of my life. I will not complain if my my trolling gets the police to solve my friend's murder. No, I I won't complain. But I mean, I'm not going to laser off the ACAB that's tattooed on my neck either. Switch and Lucky told me that their stories about what happened the night Sean died have never changed. They said they told me the exact same story that they told police when they were being interrogated in 2019. But according to law enforcement, that's not enough to bring charges in this case. Evidence that seems obvious to Laura is circumstantial from a law enforcement perspective. It may not put a specific person behind the wheel of the SUV. Murder and other homicide charges are amongst the most serious criminal charges 
So the burden of proof is high. Even if Laura and Switch and Lucky, even if the police know who killed Sean, the criminal justice system we have requires evidence that is beyond a reasonable doubt in order to get a conviction. And so far, the police say they don't have that. It was obvious after I talked to Switch and Lucky that they're not going to cooperate with police any further. And from what I've heard from them, it's not clear they have anything more to give. So I dug deeper into this case, wondering what might remove all doubt. I wanted to know whether investigators had looked into everything possible. And what I found is that in this world of anti-fascist secrecy, if you spend enough time talking to people and build enough trust, sometimes you'll have a breakthrough. I recognized it as being similar to the car that he had just bought. A four-door silver SUV type vehicle. And I talked to him about that the next day. And he said, yeah, I think that was my car. Next week on The Fault Line, Dying for a Fight, we speak to someone who the police have never spoken to and who has new information about Sean's homicide. Dying for a Fight is a co-production between Something Else and OPB. This show was reported and produced by Grant Irving, Ryan Haas, and me, Sergio Olmos. We also had reporting and production help from Jonathan Levinson and Conrad Wilson. This episode was written by Ryan Haas and me, Sergio Olmos. Our editors are Anna Griffin and Lizzie Jacobs. Fact-checking by Matt Giles. Our theme music is by Deli Girls. You can check out their music at delligirls.bandcamp.com. Music by Nolan Schneider and Pete G.K. Sam Baer is our sound engineer. Executive producers for Dying for a Fight are Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, and Anna Griffin. Thanks also to Steve Ackerman, Jen Mystery, and E.K. Ekpatola. We had production assistance from Bashak Artin and Mia Warren. Oregon Public Broadcasting, storytelling, and podcasts from all across the Northwest happen only with the support of our members. Help keep access to this critical news and information freely available to everyone by joining OPB as a monthly sustainer or with a single contribution at opb.org pod. Thank you.